story makers. I'm Angie Powers. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And this is Storymakers Show. And today on Storymakers, we are doing our Thanksgiving issue. Taking issue with Thanksgiving, having yeah. issues, and feeling gratitude. That's right. That's it. So we're going to release this on the erstwhile holiday. Mm. I want to say that we're not going to spend a lot of time on the critique of Thanksgiving, but I just want to affirm that I was raised on the critique of Thanksgiving. You suckled at the teat? <laughs> I did. I was told this story is some untrue facts. Some horse shit. Yeah. Oh, I don't even know if I can say that. You can, you can say anything you want on a podcast. No, no. You have to have like specific warnings not yeah. it's not like the radio it really isn't people i've you I've, have to put explicit on there though mm, all right we're gonna delete it I'm, you'll boop, beep it you can yeah, beep, beep it later yeah and see if you can intuit what the end of the <laughs> horse word was that's right <laughs> ah word games all kinds of family fun here today yeah the rain has arrived here in sonoma county yeah it feels like winter Finally. Yeah. I want to say, mm. just jump in here and say that one of my favorite movies is a Thanksgiving movie. And mm -hmm. that is Holly Hunter, Home for the Holidays. Robert Downey Jr. Also Home for the Who Holidays. Who else is in that? Oh, you know, that's people. not a game I'm good at, but it's really. Lots of good people. Yeah. And, you know, you have to pay attention because I'm just going to say this. It's kind of a spoiler, but that is a really old movie at this point. Yeah. If you haven't seen a film that came out in the late 80s by this point. You deserve to have some commentary floating around your head when you do finally see it. I could be wrong. I think it is the late 80s, but it could be the 90s. It could 90s. be the 90s. It might really be the 90s. But in any case, the point is, um, it's really about, at the, at the very end, they show this footage of these moments that we know were not captured mm -hmm. and they show them as footage right they right. show them as sort of like this as if i, I would even go so far to to, to, to say videotape mm -hmm. <laughs> they show them as videos uh, which was you know even then only just becoming something people were doing some of the time right so it wasn't unusual to have many many it was like home movies that weren't right but it wasn't on video which was the technology of the time right and it wasn't unusual not to have lots of home movies right so it was it wasn't but but it was a kind of an, a commentary about the things that we remember that are vivid that are important but that are not captured i thought it was a commentary on the parts of ourselves we hide from our families because they're not necessarily like that we have our store our families have stories about who we are mm -hmm. and that those clips at the end especially with robert downey jr's character were really about where he they were like his was gay happy. wedding his yeah. gay wedding right i mean they were and they were they were and they were also, they were all about the they were about all of the points when they were happy because there was the the family with the at the runway with the planes taking off the mm -hmm. little the little like the the family when they were little kids uh -huh. and their dad and their mom right, right. And they were all happy and it's this wonderful moment and the planes are like big and you know mm -hmm. taking off and then there's the gay wedding that he didn't tell any of his family about or invite them to but with all his friends and he's happy and they're on the beach and then there's the sister who's like so tightly wound and so uptight and so not like me um <laughs> different <laughs> anyway and it's her with her now husband like laughing and playing they're like playing with a water gun or something like that right and um funnily enough i don't remember I like Holly Joan Cusack. yeah i think it might have been 
And then I don't remember Holly Hunter's like happy clip moment or what's in there, unless it hers was the childhood. I think one. it was with her daughter, probably. But anyway, so it just. Um, but all of those, just to be clear, didn't really get didn't really get recorded. So we are kind of getting to witness something that are just memories mm-hmm. and not footage, which I think is kind of ahead of its time in a way. Now that footage has replaced memory. And so moving on from memory to gratitude. All right. Well, what's some? That was actually something I'm grateful for. I'm grateful for that film. But so, what, what is some filmic or literary experience for which you are grateful? Either from this year or iconically for all time. Okay, iconically for all. Well, I mean, like time. Home, for, for, Home for the Holidays is one of my favorite movies. I I did not watch it this year. Mm-mm. No, Maybe we should show it um, on Christmas Eve instead of Elf, since your parents like won't even stay for Elf anymore. <laughs> I know. How about um, actually? Funnily enough, I haven't seen it since it was in the theater, so it's been a while. I was deeply impacted by Jamie Babbitt's But I'm a Cheerleader. Yes, yes, you were. And uh, I don't know if it holds up in any way, shape, or form. Let's show that to your parents. I know. Um, But I loved so much about the humor and the actual real connection between your uh, Natasha Lyonne and your Clea Duvall characters. Uh, and they went on to make that other film that we saw. A very, like a little indie film about, yes. which you watched because you were making a film about a group of friends gathering for the weekend. Right. And it was a film about a group of friends. Right. What, what we might call a comp. Loved the Amaldivar we just saw. We just saw Pain and Glory. Mm-hmm. Pedro Amaldivar. That was gorgeous. Beautiful. I mean, just the colors and the, the story and mm-hmm. the characters. And, mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. And I'm also unexpected. grateful for Taika Watiti. So, just as an actor, oh, as, as a oh, creator, oh, for Jojo Rabbit. Well, he, Jojo Rabbit, but he also did uh, what we do in the shadows, which was sort of like I didn't see that. Uh, it. You know, the premise is that there are a bunch of vampires who are all roommates. Oh, I saw a clip of that. Yeah, and he's just got such wonderful creative courage. And I think that's yeah. great. So, and Jojo Rabbit. So, and actually, there's sort of a, a visual link between Almodovar and this Jojo Rabbit. Like, there was a one shot in particular, mm-hmm. right? That's this long shot where there's a staircase coming down yes. diagonally down the middle of the shot, and there's just a green, like, lawn at right. the top, and then I guess a wall. And the staircase almost looks like a dragon or something. Like, it's, right. And then there in the lower left hand corner of the shot, yes, it's the a two, very, the very formal. Uh, and yeah. then there's another one right after that where they're riding their bicycles away and they're just sort of at the top and again there's like a lot of landscape yes do you think those were in the storyboards I mean those oh yeah those are the kind of absolutely things and, and so but then do you so you're going to the location and you're thinking about the like you're maybe sketching on location or well, something you know I don't know yeah you because know, it was based on a book uh-huh and it would be interesting to read the book um, but, you know, he talks about, you know, as the child of, you know, a woman of Jewish descent, that there's ways in which... Playing Hitler in the movie. <laughs> playing Hitler. Um, but there's ways in which, you know, for him, I think Nazism, swastikas, those things were almost like 
you know, sex for Catholics in the sense that they're really taboo. And so they take on this other particular power. And so he did a TED Talk, which I think we've shared before, but we can share again, where he talks about his compulsion to draw swastikas. And then he knew it wasn't okay. So what he did from that place forward was to do these things. So he was wrestling with this thing that I think... As a, as a teen. Or yeah, as a teen, like middle school or something. So he's wrestling with these ideas that I think are really huge, that are feel overwhelming, and that he's also like ashamed of, mm-hmm. right? And so... How important is shame to storytelling? You know, for Catholic storytellers... Uh, very important. Are you speaking now for all Catholic storytellers? Yes. <laughs> are we are we focusing on gay Catholic storytellers here? <laughs> any Catholic storyteller that engages in sexual activity, of even while kind. married, even <laughs> what if you're trying to procreate? If you enjoy it, it's the wrong <laughs> attitude. <laughs> and so back to gratitude. Um. All right, so these are some of the things we're grateful for in terms of literature. And I want to say, I just want to say, and I've already shouted it out in the podcast, but I think the Nickel Boys has also really stuck with me and kind of in a similar way in terms of just being so, like, so beautifully done. Formally beautiful, in addition to being emotionally engaging. Right. And a lot of times I think we see uh, formal as a bad thing. Mm. But I think that's when it's not done well. Yeah, right. but it's, it's, I think that's when it's not done well. Right. When it's instead of yeah, character, emotion, story on some level. Or, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So um, also Cantoras. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to, we're going to probably do an episode on book, specific book recommendations. Right. But to talk about the gratitude. I mean, the gratitude is when a book sort of shows you shows you how it's done or shows you what's possible. Yeah. I feel really grateful. Well, then I want to shout out to Copperfield's Books because uh, they're our local independent book Woo-hoo. chain, really. <laughs> well, they're um, growing in a small independent way. I mean, right. my dad used to say, you know, Barnes & Noble was my local independent bookstore. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so they're growing, but they brought Carolina and brought Jose and Jose Who's awesome. Who's awesome and who we're excited about. And who had, the two of them had such a wonderful and engaging conversation. And Copperfields brought them. Yeah. So my shout out of gratitude is to our local bookstore for having a vibrant, literate community that pulls people together. I want to say, too, because it is, we're heading into gift season. Mm -hmm. And I want to say that um, I have uh, I have a debt of gratitude to somebody who lives in Juneau, Alaska, mm-hmm. and who I found out um, buys real books even to travel with, right? Which reminds me of you. I know. You <laughs> laugh at me, but when and, other people do it, it's fine. Well, it's good. It's good if you're not the person helping carry everything. But <laughs> anyway, but it's wonderful. And I was able to get her a gift certificate from her local bookstore. So I just want to remind people that you don't have to buy it and wrap it yourself in order to avoid the evil empire. You can contact contact local. the local thing for your far away And because away there's an internet now, you can just search for that at DuckDuckGo. And what's DuckDuckGo? DuckDuckGo doesn't collect your information. So Ooh. it's a search engine that doesn't collect your information. 
So you can go to DuckDuckGo, type in Juneau, Alaska Independent Bookstores, Mm -hmm. and something will pop up. If you want to go to Iowa City, Iowa Independent Bookstores, and those places are really happy to help you out. And to help you get your gifts to people. Now, will they deliver it to someone's house? Probably not. No, but what? But the most fun thing about your local independent bookstore is going in and wandering around and leafing through. Mm -hmm. You know, in fact, my um, steal this is is going to come from leafing, leafing store. But that, but that will come later. All right. All right. So, what else are we? What else are you just grateful for having experienced, or having written, or having partaken in, or any of those things? Well, I think I'm actually, as we look at some of our children's work, I am constantly amazed at how children are able to take in models and then create their own voice from those models well in a way that's what they're like wired to do at this point absolutely but you know when we get to be adults we think there's one way to do that so you don't get to pick your model we (laughs) you know so i actually have a great deal of gratitude for the way our kids engage with their creativity because it's a constant reminder um about the limitations of getting it right and, and elementary school kids up through a certain point, at least in middle school. Yeah. So creative. Absolutely. And so just unstoppable and unafraid. I mean, I've, I've had like teaching adults and then going in and teaching kids. I've had to just cut all of my encouragement about not being afraid and trying things and taking risks and, you know, doing your own thing because they're that's they're that's what they're planning to do. Because they're like, of course. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, OK. Stop talking so I feel I grateful that we, A, have kids who do that, but we also have a community where we can engage with kids and, and be able to observe that, not just with our own kids, but with lots of kids so that, you know, it's not just a, a children thing, a one right, child, right. our children thing. It's, it's how kids are. And so um, I feel very grateful for that. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that. I will say I've also gotten to read manuscripts that are not yet published Mm -hmm. um, and not even some of them aren't even yet forthcoming and um and that's actually a real pleasure and Mm -hmm. i think i've I've probably talked about this but one it reminds me um of i mean a lot of the writing process is being your own best editor so practicing by editing other people um is is great and um there are just so many amazing writers out there right. you know and and what gets published there's actually a lot of fabulous stuff getting published and there's a lot of fabulous stuff not getting published and it's just great to read some of that it's an honor it's an honor mm-hmm. so i feel grateful for that and to think about it you know to think about it as a reader in a very deep way and then offer that just to people right um I just had the question because Bandit is quite loud today in his background presence. So if he shows up in an episode, is he a show dog? Um, all right. So also, since we so we don't seem like some kind of Facebook posts, like we're grateful for this and we're grateful for that and our life is so perfect. The top 10 things we're grateful for. Um, what kind of advice um, can we pull from all of this what, what what might be helpful to our wonderful story makers out there who are trying to survive the holidays 
and nurture creativity and, you know, possibly, I don't know, save the world on the side. Plus bring salad. I think the first thing I would actually suggest is that if you are going to go to a gathering, a meal gathering on Thursday. Or any other time. But specifically, because this one is extra fraught, um, that the armor you bring is curiosity. So (laughs) that... Sometimes you'll sit with people that you know and love and who ostensibly love you and be completely baffled by why they would choose to say that right now. But it's going to make a hell of a story later. But also... There's a reason NaNoWriMo is November. Right. But also sitting back and asking, like, yeah, really, why are they? Or what happens to the group? Or what are the unique ways that people respond? Because often in groups, it's not that, like, the whole half of the table is having one set of conversations and the whole half of the table is having another. It's more that you have like one or two people kind of stirring the pot where a lot of people would be willing to sort of, you know, this is how we do this thing. Oh, and you're not playing right. So how does the, how does the, the group, how does the system work when these little pockets of disturbance pop up? It's also an incredible opportunity to observe the things that, you know, sort of a lot of ex- writing exercises say, you know, like go eavesdrop on people and pay attention to the rhythms of dialogue and the ways that people interrupt themselves and interrupt each other and, and miss, you know, don't like like cross speak, right? Don't answer. What? <laughs> and all of that. So really great dialogue work mm-hmm. and body language and gesture yes. and action, right? Like what are people doing? So they're talking about... You know, whatever. Yeah, and that's part of what I was trying to get at is when you have that person who pops up and does the thing that disturbs the system, you know, depending on the size of your get-together, you could have five to ten really unique responses. Who yells back? Who leans back? Who looks at their plate? Who pours some more wine? Right? Who, you know, so... Who makes a joke? Right? And so what a wonderful opportunity to build that catalog of character-specific action. Yeah. And really to see how much emotion and meaning is contained in gesture and in all the, you know, the the clothing choices people have made, the food choices, the ways people, I mean, all those things. I mean, you get kind of creepy if you just sit there (laughs) like scribbling in your notebook. (laughs) But it might be fighting back. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. You know, with like Uncle Fred or I mean, you raise an important point. How do you capture all this information? I mean, some of it is just that being someone on whom nothing is lost bit. That's Henry James. Try to be someone on whom nothing is lost. Great. It's a call to the artist. I think that uh, you could do that, which... Not sure about the first steps on that one, but keeping a small notepad is one way to go. Um, if you are someone who is likely to overindulge in any number of things, <laughs> having a concrete way of reaccessing your information. I just want to say my housemate from college, Franklin, his family's motto for Thanksgiving was, why be full when you can be uncomfortable? <laughs> I always loved that. I want to actually talk a little bit about irony because I suspect Thanksgiving might be an opportunity 
I mean, it is an opportunity for irony, right? And I've been reading a little bit about irony, back to Matt Bird, mm. and, you know, thinking about irony, thinking about that gap between expectation and outcome. Doesn't that sound like a Greek goddess name? Irony? Yes. Actually, it'd be a great name. Yeah. Like, like our third kid. Yes. <laughs> our next dog. Yeah. Irony. <laughs> Maybe we should just change Bandit's name. <laughs> but... Um, what makes something logical enough that the irony works? Like, so it's not, it's not so unexpected, it's surreal, right? It has some kind of, so the, the gap between expectation and outcome is just the right gap. So that mm. it's ironic rather than surreal or nonsensical. So are you saying that the surreal is not ironic? Is it? I'm asking about this. I guess the surreal is ironic at its best. But at its best, I mean, I think um, Annie Dillard talks about this. It's sort of, um, it has to be, it has to make sense in a way, the surreal, right? That it's more interesting when it's an egg in a cage, you know, in a bird cage rather than like a leaf or something. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So there's, so the gap between the expected and the, and, the, and the outcome is there, but not so wide that it's insurmountable. Like if it was a shoe. In a in a cage. In a Magritte. Does he have a shoe in a cage? No. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so do you have any thoughts on this? Wait, maybe he does. Shoe in a cage? Or maybe I read the Annie Dillard and I'm pulling back <laughs> things that don't make sense. <clears throat> I mean, I feel like we've gone to gotten to a time where almost anything can be explained. But Really? But if it requires an explanation, it's not a very good joke. Well, I was going to say something about our president there, but. (laughs) Presidents are not kings. Love that. I'm grateful for that. Oh, my God. Right? (laughs) So. For writing? That's. Talk about great writing. Fantastic writing and, like, not in a context you often think of hearing great writing like that. Yeah. Actually, I was thinking about that judge as a character. Mm-hmm. I will put a link in the show notes to this um, this decision that was handed down that said, no, Trump can't um, re- per- per- forbid people from testifying before Congress who are subpoenaed by Congress, right? Right. And But I was thinking about the character of somebody who decides to to sort of speak truth to power from a position of power. Uh-huh. And just, and with such a wit and a voice, you know, presidents are not kings. I mean, there's just, and there's more. It's, well, the whole thing about, you know, for the past 250 years, that's sort of been the whole exercise. Right. That's the, that's the take home, right? The take home lesson of the past 250 years of American history. Yeah. So um, that was very exciting. We'll link to that in the show notes. And I will say Several this, times. And this probably bears its own show that isn't so motley as this one, but um it has surprised me. I maybe have already mentioned this too, but it has surprised me to realize that writing is probably a really important political tool. I mean, obviously, I know writing is can be an important political tool, but I think sometimes it can feel. I don't know. I feel like Thomas Paine didn't really feel like that was true. And <laughs> what do you mean? You don't remember Thomas Paine? No, I do. Well, he's the, the big pamphlet writer, right? The big pamphlet. Yeah. So, 
Before we had the internet, we had pamphlets. Yeah. Um, Your baby and you. <laughs> common sense. You're right. Um. No, right. So, but I think because we're so inundated with information and writing, it can feel as though um, perhaps the tool has lessened in some way. It's mm-hmm. its power lessened, but uh, but it turns out we're not necessarily writing about um, the things that need to be said. That's deep. Yeah. What's so, the gratitude in that? Well, I'm grateful that the thing that I've spent the past 30 years devoting my life to and the thing that I see on the horizon as the most urgent can possibly like conjoin mm-hmm. in a fruitful So you don't way. have a shoe in a birdcage. Right. As it turns out. Mm-hmm. As it turns out, my, my skill set might be worth something on a political level. Right. And interestingly enough, you put me in mind, there was a quick blurb that I saw passing by my phone. And it was talking about a blurb or a headline. It was probably a headline. Um, But it was talking about deep fake videos, right? And how AI is now able to create video that is believable. I have to say the ones that I've seen, I'm like, does not look real to me. But... Apparently, it looks real enough to enough people now, and of course, it will only improve. So it brings the question up, what can you trust when Mm -hmm. you have video that can be so easily doctored at this point so that we have footage of someone breaking a law or saying, I don't care about someone when that's not what they said or, you know, those different pieces. And it almost makes me think that... That's why newspapers are great, because the truth is newspapers never had that, right? They were always, always impacted by the political beliefs of their owners. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, the political beliefs were that newspapers are, in fact, a private organ. I can say what I want because it's my newspaper. In other cases, it's been like it's got a responsibility to these higher ideals about reality and so it's sort of funny to think about how will we move forward with the things we can trust as the ways we have been become less and less reliable yeah so i'm grateful for newspapers all right yes support your local and international newspapers right yeah and um it's sort of funny because that we're back to footage in a way. And mm-hmm. what I think is interesting, though, is that you don't find it as convincing. And it's because probably partly because you're a filmmaker. And as more and more people become fluid in filmmaking, which is really happening, right. it might actually become less convincing. I think there's still an uncanny valley to cross. And so there's things that will happen that will either signal to you, oh, there was an edit. Define uncanny valley. Uncanny valley is the difference between... Um, what we understand is a, it's a visual concept. So the idea is you have a robot, say, and it looks really human, but it's not quite there. And even though technically you may, it may be so good that you don't know what's wrong. You can't even articulate why it doesn't work. The uncanny valley is our intuitive sense of what is real, right? How do we perceive people 
in, so that when we see something that's not people like, we know it. We may not be able to have a language for it, but we know and this that the doesn't look the right. the distance between mm-hmm. – this is kind of interesting, yeah. right? So the uncanny valley is the distance between um, what we know to be real and something – Yeah, I mean, if you look at the amount of information a face conveys, it's huge. It's a huge amount yeah. of information. It's not just the lift of an eyebrow. It's all the tiny muscles of the face. And when you create a robot – and you want it to look realistic. And Uncanny, Uncanny Valley actually also refers to other... Anytime you're trying to do a representation of a human, there's ways in which it... The failure is that distance, right? Between. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I have a question about that. Mm-hmm. So in fiction, mm-hmm. we there's sort of this agreement, this suspension of disbelief. Right. Right? Is that this, in a way the suspension of the Uncanny no. Valley? No. It's when someone says... I don't understand this character. Like, they don't seem real. So what's the difference between suspension of disbelief and, or, you know, and the, how does the uncanny valley operate in fiction? Well, I don't know that it's been applied to it in any way, shape, or form. It's a visual meaning. But if you wanted to apply something that had a visual definition, then what I would say is that the uncanny valley would be more likely to be applied to bot generated text so text that is nearly right oh the, oh there was an article in the new yorker about this which mm-hmm. i probably won't be able to dig up before thanksgiving and put link to but maybe um but ju- and it and it and it had these passages and they were initially kind of extremely convincing and then they taped less off, yeah. so yeah less so but kind of they were like sort of and they were trying to be new yorker like in mm-hmm. their in their writing interesting right but you have a sense. We have a sense. Like, we build a sense of things. And certainly when it comes to things like interacting with people, again, I don't know how many actual muscles are in the face, but it's not two. And so... <laughs> greater than. Yes, it's greater than two. And so just that that sense of what are the pieces that... I mean, and a person couldn't even necessarily themselves say, I'm moving this tiny right. ocular muscle in this way or you know I got kicked in the head when I was 14 and so I actually have a slight uh, deadening of certain muscles because of that right and so sometimes I look like I'm happy when I'm not right or something like that but those are all specific and unique to actual humans so let's just do a quick wrap up on this somewhat meandering but potentially helpful podcast (laughs) so first we talked about some stories films and novels and things that we're grateful for this year and just really i think wanting to remind the story makers who are listening to us how much stories offer us and how they bring us joy they bring us aesthetic pleasure they bring us insight and so the work that we're all doing here to create stories is really worthwhile and brings gratitude from the audience slash reader point of view okay and then we talked about some strategies for bringing your writer artist creator self to thanksgiving and going away with lots of juicy observations and some added skills in dialogue gesture action and character differentiation and finally we talked about the uncanny valley and uh 
do with that what you will, because it is time for... Steal This. Amateur Poets Borrow. Professional Poets Steal. What have you come across in your wanderings and readings that you would like to take and make your own? You go first. Well, I mentioned that I was in Copperfield's books in Sebastopol last night, picking up uh, the Amitav Gosha book, The Great Derangement. And um, I'm actually so excited about the opening of that book. It's really great but um and and not deranged but uh while i was there i was looking at the jacket copy and kind of leafing Mm -hmm. through some different books and one of the things that i noticed was a particular book where the characters are described as um as as very distinct from each other it's actually miriam t-o-e-w-s taves or toes Um, she's a she's a I think Canadian writer, she has a new book out called Women Talking that's been getting a lot of attention. And then this book got named on one of the year-end lists, and so it got pulled out as well. Um, and it's called My Puny Sorrows, I think, something like that. And um, so I haven't read it yet, but it's it describes these two sisters, and one of them is happy and happily married and successful. I'm sorry. How does this relate to Steal This? Amitav Ghosh? It doesn't. Oh. All right. Full disclosure. <laughs> we just paused and replayed the whole thing. And Not saw, the whole thing. Just, no, the just the section, steal this yeah. and just saw the sort of 30 to 60 seconds that Angie just completely spaced <laughs> out. <laughs> and I want to say. It was say, one phrase. It was so. It's such a good lesson in dialogue in terms of <laughs> what, you're, what one character is saying and what one character is hearing. But just to quickly finish up with Miriam Taves or Toes. Um, toes? T-O-E-W-S. Tweez? Anyway. We already, I already went through this when you were in I know. So I know. the point is one character on the... This is just the jacket got me. So one character... Is the sister who's happily married and successful and uh-huh. great career. And the other one is like getting a divorce and is a failure, essentially. And it's about how the happy sister attempts suicide. Oh. And, I mean, the, the successful, not actually clearly totally happy. Well, because um, you said she was happy. Well, she was, she you know, she seemed happy from the jacket copy, as we often do. And... The thing is, it was just, it was that pithy, high-level story observation where here are these two characters who externally have this these opposing opposite. set of circumstances and internally have the opposite opposing set of circumstances. And so you get this kind of wonderful dynamic with the characters. And it made me think about the next thing I'm working on and thinking about the characters. Uh-huh. And... Um, just thinking about differentiating them in relationship to each other and on a certain access. And I was access and I was really excited about it. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, well fortunately, you? my steal this was that I've been doing a lot of um, math, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a lot of logic puzzles, a lot of whatever. And I was going to say that really what I wanted, I noticed while I was playing tennis this morning that... You know, I was I was like on fire. Every single piston, both of them were just firing. <laughs> and then after this, I'm just not sure that I can make that claim that all the pistons are firing. I apparently have one piston <laughs> firing. But and maybe it's the difference between physical and mental pistons. 
Well, when you're playing tennis, no, you were but thinking but about our, math. While no, you were playing no, tennis. no. Our coach would say something, and then I would change it into something else that felt more accessible to me as a metaphor. Oh, and you were translating, interpreting. Yeah, so I was changing it, oh. and it was. And there were just these different things where it kept happening. I mean, one of them is like, I'm, I'm learning how to jump while I serve right now. And one of them is he's like, you know, when you see a little kid at a birthday party hitting a pinata, they don't like hammer it down at the ground, which you see a lot of new uh, tennis players doing, myself Mostly because they're like so little underneath it. Well, there's that, but they're, they're, they're jumping and hitting. They're jumping and hitting. And that's really what he's trying to show is like you're excited. You know, you're, you're, you're coming up to the ball as much as the ball's coming to you. But... He hadn't used that specifically, but when he said, like, oh, like, you know, when you see little kids at the a party, and I was like, oh, but you have to hang the pinata first. And what I realized is I was trying to hang the pinata and hit it at the same time, right? And so... I feel like that's a deep metaphor for life. Yeah. Right? And for all of this, all of this. Yeah. Writing, so really filmmaking. Just, I was like, oh, look at my mental effing clarity. And then this hours happened. later, hours, hours later, later. Um, here we are. 